You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. We're glad to see you all here. Uh, September's here. We're super excited uh, to be gathered as a church. And we're doing in September just a little vision refresher. You know, like, why do we do the things that we do here at Citizens and and was there purpose behind, you know, choosing to be formed in this way or that way? And um, we started Citizens Church like three years, a little over three years ago. And the vision was that we could do church a little bit different. Like there would be a lot of things about church that are very similar to how we all grew up if you grew up in the church. But, you know, just going to a service and just being involved in a program was something that we wanted to kind of step away from. We, all of us who have been believers know that we've been given like a big vision in the scriptures of being a family together of Christian brothers and sisters. And so primarily we talked about circles. If you've been here for a while, we usually talk about three circles, um, the gathering, missional family, sacred communities, and following Jesus is kind of assumed, but we should never assume it, okay? This is basically the, the spiritual formation of those who call citizens home. The way that we believe disciples are going to be made is in these contexts. And primarily, the the thing that we talk the most about is missional families. So if you've been on our website or if you have been around here at all, you have heard the phrase missional families. It's it's a place where, again, brothers and sisters in Christ with uh, kids, without kids, the whole variety come together and do just a few things. We enjoy life together. We build relationships. We do it over food together. We bring in the truth of the gospel message. So there's prayer and there's scripture and there's application to our lives. And then we are regularly asking the Lord, where do you want us to serve our neighbor? The the neighbor that's maybe directly beside me, or it's my coworker, or it's someone that I'm interacting with, where do you want me to serve? And so this is it. And if you would boil down what missional family means, it's kind of this. Missional families are a committed group of people learning to follow Jesus together. That's what we're doing. And this is, all, this is pretty much a copy and paste from the website, okay? So there's nothing new that you're hearing here. This is what we're doing in missional families. And here's the reality of it. If you're only in a missional family by name alone, meaning that you don't attend, you never are there, we don't, we don't want this moment to feel like a moment of guilt for you. We want this moment to be uh, another moment to be invited into this thing we call missional families where you can grow together. But here's what it means, and those of us who are in one have experienced this already. This gathering of single people and married people, married people with kids, married people without kids, old and young, is a, it's a difficult thing to bring all those kinds of people together. So we know that the vision that we have set out is a big ask for all of us. Mostly because We're not familiar with even that level of commitment to each other in that context. But we're saying as a church, we are committed to this vision. 
of seeing each other grow in Christ in Christian community. So I want to invite you again this Sunday to enter into missional family. And if you're in a missional family already, there's going to be a couple of things that you'll probably be talking about in missional families really early on here. The first is we are going to be moving towards like streamlining when people are meeting. We've been finding that leaders have been acting more as like schedulers than any other thing and trying to make the right kind of schedule for everybody and it's, it's not actually bearing a lot of great fruit. So as a missional family, you're going to be talking about, hey, when can we regularly meet so that everybody knows who's a part of this missional family, this is when we meet, this is what we're committing to. It might even mean that we have some like changing of groups because the days aren't really lining up, but that's okay. The second thing that missional families are going to be doing is going to be having a discussion about what they want their missional family to be about. So we have like a few basic things that we kind of train our leaders in, but we want you and your missional family to talk about what is it that we want to do together, what are we committing to together, and then to step into that in faith and say, okay, God, now we want to like enter into what you're doing around us. And so we're committing to this thing together. So it's a a family discussion, and then it's agreeing on that. So if you're here and you're a part of Citizens, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're not in a missional family, we just encourage you to take that step this fall to, like, enter in. You are, this is it. This is your formal invitation, okay? You are invited in to join into this thing called missional family, and you can find out more on our website, or you can come to the Welcome to Citizens class, which is just, uh, I think it's in two or three weeks. You can find out more on our website about that, and find out more about missional family and how to get involved, okay? Let's pray, and then we will look at Ephesians. God, we thank you. I'm so grateful, Lord, for everyone that's here. Thank you for bringing us into this place. Lord, we thank you that church is your idea, a a gathering of your people brought together from all kinds of different life circumstances and experiences, and yet here together we experience the presence of Jesus in our midst. And Lord, that it's a miracle that we don't want to take for granted, and so we say thank you for doing that and for, for giving us the ability to enjoy that Christian community together. Lord, thank you for citizens for building your church here in Elmira. May you bless it and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a couple of years ago, um, I watched the documentary titled The Farthest. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. It's a PBS documentary. And sometimes I really get into stuff. So I was really into the. I think I've watched this one two, possibly three times. How nerdy is that? You know, watching a documentary multiple times. But it's a documentary about NASA's mission of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. I don't know if you've ever heard of these spacecraft, these like satellite spacecraft that they sent into space in 1977 with the goal of studying and capturing primarily on film and video the solar system that we were in. All the the planets were going to be lined up so that they could send out Voyager 1 and 2 and after each planet they would kind of be slingshotted onto the next one and to the next one. 
So they take off in 1977 and send them up into space. And then this is a, like a multi-decade process of going out into the solar system. So in like 1979, they passed Jupiter. In 1980, they passed Saturn. 1989, Neptune. And, and all the while taking pictures. And then in, in 1990, kind of one of the, the last things that they think they're going to be able to do with Voyager 1 is they say, turn around and take one more picture of Earth before you head off into interstellar. That space, you know, at the end of our solar system where you kind of push beyond our solar system. So they, they tell Voyager 1 to turn around and take a picture. And there's a famous picture, it's pretty famous, it's called Pale Blue Dot, where Voyager, kind of using this 1970s technology, takes one last picture of Earth before heading into interstellar. And that little pale blue dot is Earth sitting in space. And so at every point, 79, 1980, and even, you know, in, I forget if this was in the in 2000s or, yeah, 2012, crossing into interstellar, at every moment, these pictures were coming in. And the documentary kind of captures the excitement of the scientists as they would have what they called these data dumps, these like massive amounts of information. So it's flying by Jupiter. It's taking all these high-resolution pictures, and then it's dumping all this data. And, and in the documentary, you can see all these scientists. They're just like giddy, you know? They're just so excited looking at all these pictures. These were like first-time photos, and now we've got the James Webb Telescope, which is taking even better shots of all these planets. The Apostle Paul, if you weren't here last week, gave us like this theological dump of all that we have in Christ. And I'm happy to say that my sermon did not capture the grandeur of all that Paul was saying. There's no way to capture like the depth of everything that Paul is trying to like give to us about the reality of all that we have in Christ. This theological dump on us that is meant to literally overwhelm us with everything that we have in Christ. And now here Paul in the the remaining section of this ver this chapter which I mean Paul didn't know chapters but this kind of collection of ideas he says, here's what you do when theological truths just kind of overwhelm you. And I don't know if you've had that happen before where the scriptures just come alive and the reality of what Christ has done for us just comes over like a wave. Paul says, here's what I've done when this truth comes and overwhelms me. He says, he begins by rejoicing in the reality of Jesus coming out in their lives. Look, if you have your scriptures open, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, For this reason, because of all that he's explained, because of all that he knows about them as a church, he says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul says, I am so excited that the reality of Jesus is actually being seen in your life. Like, you guys are true disciples. You are 
you know, showing love to each other and you're showing the faith that you have in Jesus. Paul is like a, a parent who's kind of gushing over his kids. And for any of us who are parents, and many of us are parents in the room here, we know that being a parent is hard work. It's like years of hard work. And there's many people in our world today, all over the world, who do not want to have kids anymore. Okay, like birth rates are plummeting in basically every, uh, you know, society that is on the upward mobile because having kids costs too much. They're way too expensive. They take too much time. They cost too much of your energy. They steal your dreams. Like the, all these things, okay? Maybe you've thought these, and the kids in the room are like, what? That's what mom and dad think of me? <laughs> Them, those people out there, we would never have those thoughts in the room here, right? This is what people are, it costs too much. But listen, as parents, you experience like tremendous joy when you see your kids growing up and going from stage to stage. Whether it's the the toddler that's starting to walk and you're like, yes, you're doing it. Or maybe it's the, you know, the young person who's just graduating high school or getting their first job. Whatever it is, as a parent, you realize, usually after the fact, that, yeah, it's like a lot of hard work, but there's like steps. And especially when there's like steps of progress and, you know, good choices, you're like, yes, it's actually, there's like some payment here to all the work, to all the cost. And Paul felt this. From all that we know about Paul is that he was a single church planter. Didn't know the experience of having his own child. But Paul has this experience as a church planter, as a, as a spiritual father of seeing the people that he has invested in. All the, all the traveling that Paul has done, all the you know, in caring for people, all the you know, suffering that he endured that thousands of miles traveled on foot and by sea, cost, cost, cost. But now Paul's saying, you're doing it. You're following Jesus. You're actually like, you're putting your trust in him. And he says, you're actually loving each other. This is amazing. And he just says, the, the truth, the overwhelming truth of the gospel is taking root in Ephesus. He just wants to like throw a party. That's what he wants to do. This is amazing. The truth of the gospel is real. He says, you are living out what Jesus taught. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says this, By this, by your actions, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there Jesus boils it down. And he does this multiple times in the gospels. You boil down all the law, the whole thing. And he says, it's this, love God and love your neighbor. And so here he says, this is how people are going to know that you're a follower of Jesus. Or eventually that the word Christian would come up, that you're a Christian. You're going to have love for each other. And Paul says, it's happening. Ephesians, it's happening. The seed of the gospel is growing in your midst. And he says, I give thanks. But then he says, the next thing that he does, so 
give thanks. God is doing something. The gospel is taking root in their lives, not just an idea, in their lives. Real transformation. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But then he says, the next thing I do is I pray. I pray for you. So the second part of verse 16, he says, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says, I pray for you. And remember, I was just describing all that Paul did. Paul's traveling. He's planting churches. He's developing leaders. He's writing like the majority of the New Testament. This guy is busy. There's a reason why he's actually single. So he can be dedicated to this ministry because he is doing one thing after the next. But there's also other times where Paul is not busy. We know, we talked about this last week, that he was in Ephesus for two years. So he's there, plugged in, working, teaching them, involved. This letter, Ephesians, most likely written from a prison in Rome where he's in house arrest. He describes himself as being in chains. So his calendar just got totally wide open because he's not going anywhere, okay? He is stuck in that house maybe writing letters, maybe visiting with guests. So in Paul's life, there are seasons of busyness and there's seasons of less busyness, which should sound familiar to us. Isn't that what your life often sounds like? Maybe it's all busyness, whether by, whether by choice or by circumstance of life, you have all kinds of things going on in your life, from demands at work, to a leaky roof of a house, to making sandwiches in the morning, to a cold that's coming around the corner, like whatever it is, there is busyness to life. But then there's also seasons of uh, less busyness, um, times maybe of Sabbath and rest, where there's actually a window. Maybe it's just minutes, or maybe it's hours or days or weeks, there's windows in your life where there's actually Sabbath and rest. And so Paul says, when I think of you, I rejoice at the gospel and then I pray. And there's a couple, there's a few other verses. They're not included in the slide, but let me just read some of these verses that describe Paul's own prayer life. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Colossians 1.9 says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then Philippians 1.3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, all, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul had a discipline of prayer in his life. And I, I can guarantee you this, he was not born with this discipline. He wasn't walking around as a five-year-old dedicated to praying for people, okay? This is something that he grew into. So let me ask you, how is your prayer life? Most of us who are Christians, we, we know that we should pray, Maybe we feel like, you know, God's happier when we pray. I, I hope that's not your primary thought. Hopefully you desire to learn to pray so that you can connect with God. 
so that you can speak to the creator of the universe about anything that is going on in your life. But to become a prayer, a regular person of prayer, takes a growth in discipline. It takes a growth forming a a habit, not just relying on like all the circumstances being perfect. So Trevin Wax, an author, puts it this way. If you can train yourself toward good habits, you don't have to rely solely on sheer willpower to try and do the right thing anymore. So he's saying you can build into your life a discipline that is regular that will produce fruit over time. Every morning, without fail, I make coffee. It's like the first thing I do. It's almost 365 days a year. There's a couple of days that are missing, okay? But those are bad days, usually, okay? Every morning, it's just like a part of my life. I get up, go to the coffee maker, I make it. But again, I wasn't born with that habit. That has been created over time, and it's become a part of my life. Prayer is like that. So let me encourage you to um, take a step forward. Maybe this season of life is actually a, a season where you take a step forward in your prayer life. We've been talking about prayer a lot all year. I don't know if you've noticed. It's come a lot up here at Citizens. And we're going to actually be providing some other opportunities to pray as a congregation in the coming months. But this may be a season where you actually grow in your life of prayer. And let me encourage you to practice daily prayer. Practice daily prayer. Now listen, begin this practice where you're at today. I'm not encouraging you tomorrow to say, tomorrow, 6 o'clock, an hour of prayer on my knees, baby. Like this, this is how it's going to start, okay? A habit will, for most of us, will not be formed that way. A habit will be formed with finding space in your life and saying, I'm committing to this now for a season here. So it may be on your drive to work. I'm taking five minutes. I'm going to set the timer. Five minutes where it's going to be silence and prayer to God. That's what I'm starting with. And, I'm, you know, maybe after day three, I'm going to fail already, you know, or day five is going to be really hard. But I'm going to get back on the bike. I'm going to keep at it for a season here and practice daily prayer. Another way to do it may be to practice corporate prayer. So if you're in a missional family, there's space already for this where the missional family is gathering together and corporate prayer is practiced. So you take time at the dinner table or after you've eaten and you commit to praying for each other. And, and to stay, to keep your head kind of in that prayer space because all of us are so distracted. You know, we teach our kids to close our eyes and to do this, right? So you're not distracted. You, all of us probably still need to do this, okay? Because we're easily distracted. I, I learned a trick years ago from from an, from an old saint at, at Woodside, actually, where we were attending, they would just, throughout the prayer, regularly say, Amen. They just kept saying, Amen. Like after every sentence, Amen. Amen. It kept their head in the prayer, and all, Amen is not the end of the prayer, okay? Just so you know, Amen is not the ending. All Amen means is, so be it. 
It's a way of agreeing with what's being prayed. It keeps your head in the corporate prayers. So be it. So Paul here says, I'm so thankful that the gospel is taking root, but all I do then is I keep praying for you. And so now, for the, the rest of the time that we have together, we want to just look at what is the content of Paul's prayer. What is he praying about here? We know that we have like the Lord's Prayer, which is a, is a wonderful prayer for us to have and to memorize. But here we see Paul is going to bring out a theologically rich prayer. And it's something for us to actually learn from. So Paul says there's, I categorized it in three chunks. There are three things that I want you to know and that I'm praying that you will know. And the first is this, that you would know God. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul says, this is my first prayer to you, that is that you would know God. And listen, we are living in a postmodern society, which basically says anything that is put forward, any idea, anything that sounds like it's authoritative in any sense should be questioned and held at arm's length. And the only thing that is actually like valid truth is what comes from within us. That's the society that we're living in now. My truth is primary truth. Anything else should be held at a distance and probably rejected because to know anything is like, you know, the, the greatest pride in our day and age or it's a form of oppression. Okay, so that's the world, that's the day and age that we're living in. That's what we're constantly hearing. So to know anything just like kind of hits a bit of a wall for many of us, whether we've realized it or not, because this is the age we're formed in. But is that what the scriptures teach us? Is that what God has actually revealed? It's not. God has actually made clear for us that the scriptures, the, the writing down, the, the revelatory scriptures that are given to us are given to us so that we can know him. We can know the God of this universe. Now listen, maybe you came from a, a church where it was kind of like knowing him meant like that there was no questions, that there was no mystery to it. It was just kind of like, take it all, 100%, you know, okay, yes, you know. There's definitely going to be mystery. There's going to be some questions as we peer into the depths of an infinite God. J.I. Packer in his a very well-known book called Knowing God, he says this, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts on God. So Paul says, here's my prayer. My prayer is that you would know God because he is knowable. But realize you're stepping into infinity when you think about God. It is a work that will go on throughout your whole earthly life. And then think about this. We will be in his presence 
we will not be God, but we will be in his presence and we will experience him in newness for infinity. Okay, I just lost myself there and I lost all of you as well, okay? Because we don't know a concept like that. But yet Paul says, this is what I want you to experience. But this knowledge of God is not just like facts alone. It's not just like memorized information. The reality is that we can know him through experience. What he says in John 15, 15, this amazing thing happens where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I no longer, you know, no longer call each other master and slave, but he says, I have called you friends. So this is not just knowing something about God. This is not just being able to read J.I. Packer's Knowing God and having it all highlighted. This is experiencing friendship with God. Have you experienced that before? Have you had that? The very things that you have experienced in earthly friendships with people, intimacy, honesty, sharpening, this is what it means to know God. And Paul says, this is my prayer for you, that you would know him. Second one, verse 18, Paul says that you would know hope as well. Verse 18 says this, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We talked about this last week. There is an inheritance waiting for us. Something that we begin to experience here and now, but there is more waiting for us. And Paul says, our hope is vast and it is deep. Yesterday I was actually looking at some um, old receipts. It was like a stack of old receipts from construction projects that we've done at the house over the last like three or four years. I was looking back at all this stuff and I was like, man, we made like a lot of decisions about, you know, this thing, that thing, purchasing things, sending it back, stuff's broken. All that stuff just takes like a lot of mental energy, just living life and making improvements to a house. And so easily, and I had the testimony right in front of me of all the receipts, it can just like, in, like take all of your mental energy. Everything about the here and now can just be totally drawn in to home building projects or to building a career or to raising children. And we're human. This totally happens. We get totally engrossed in one thing. And Paul is saying, here's my prayer. My prayer is that your hope would be in something that is beyond you so that you can live as people. The result then of people who live with hope is that we can freely give of ourselves to our neighbors. That we can practice self-sacrificial love. That we can care for people who are different than, than us, who have different worldviews and who, you know, we're not rattled by that, but we can stand firm in the hope that we have. It's an inheritance that is rich. So Paul prays that we would know him and that we would know the hope that we have in him. And finally, that we would know the power of the resurrection. Have you ever felt something in nature like really powerful? 
like a, maybe a big storm. I don't know if we, did we have like a good like summer storm? Like a, we probably did have some, yeah. I'm just not remembering. Or maybe you've been by the ocean, big waves, some sort of natural phenomenon that shows the power of the world around us. Now here's a question. Have you ever experienced resurrection power in your life? Resurrection power. Maybe you're thinking, I must be in the wrong church. We don't talk about that here. You know, what, what is resurrection power? That's what Paul wants us to grasp and get a hold of. That Jesus raised from the dead, and that now is power in our lives. Listen to verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So do you see the things that have happened there to Jesus? That Jesus was seated at God's right hand, that he is over all rulers, over all rulers, the principalities, the powers of this age, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So there's an age coming where Christ is going to totally rule And that's coming, but he's already totally in power in this age that we're in now and in the age to come. And he has put all things under Jesus' authority. That's what God has done. So Paul says, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Toward us who believe. See, here's the amazing thing. We've heard this phrase, in Christ or in him, multiple times in chapter 1 already. But here's what's happened. All that happened to Christ, his his life, all that he did, his death, and the power of his resurrection and his ascension and glory, all that we've been thinking about and reading about, all these things we enter into with him. We are with him now in Christ It's astounding. We've done nothing for this. But Paul says, this is the gospel. You are ushered into all these glorious things with Christ. But we live in the age still where it's not in its fullness yet. So we're experiencing resurrection power in our lives, but someday it'll be in its totality, 100%. But listen, many of us live as if Resurrection power is only a someday event. But Paul here is praying for the believers there and for even those of us today who are reading this in 2023 that we would experience resurrection power here and now. So how do we do that? Let me close with this. Three simple things. First is we experience Jesus now. So we talked about friendship with Christ what Jesus said to his disciples, well, we now can experience in our lives friendship with Jesus, an experience of Jesus 
interacting with our lives in real time and in real space. So when you go into work or when you're at home, you can experience the peace of Christ. What Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Can I tell you, so many of your neighbors, so many of your coworkers are desperate for peace. They're desperate for peace. And the question is, will they look at a Christian and will they actually see someone who's experiencing the peace of God in a chaotic world? Or are they just going to look at someone and all they see is the very same thing, someone who experiences no peace at all? Paul says we can experience that, that resurrection power in our lives here and now. So experiencing Jesus now. Second, God can change you and me. There are things in all of our lives where the Holy Spirit still needs to form us and change us. Paul uses in another uh, book of his this idea in Romans, this idea of metamorphosis, a butterfly, you know, like changing from a caterpillar into a butterfly. He says this transformation, the change from this thing to this thing, This is what God is doing. He is changing us from the inside out. This is resurrection power. And lastly, God saves. Do you have people in your life who you're praying for, who you're wondering, do they know Christ? Could they ever know Christ? Maybe you look at their lives and you think they've been hurt by the church or they're of another faith. Or they have so many things that you're like, the wall to reach them is like as high as this room. You know, it's just like so high, nothing is ever going to do it. But can I tell you, there's resurrection power. There was enough resurrection power to save us. Like that was grace enough that we were saved. We also had walls as high as could be. And yet resurrection power has come. So Paul says, my prayer for you is that you would experience in the here and now, in the everyday things of life, the power of the resurrected Jesus. So this morning as we shift over to communion here, we are going to take some time to reflect on the body of Christ which was broken, which is represented in the bread and the blood of Christ which was spilled, which is represented in this juice. There is no resurrection if there's no death. And so as Christians, we're called to remember. We're called to remember what Christ has done for us, the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, which has given us entrance into this resurrection life and and the entrance into a changed world through Jesus. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to hand out the bread if this is, uh, if you haven't had communion in a while or um, if you don't know how we do it here. If you're a believer, we invite you to take this bread and we're going to pass it around and you can take your cup and just eat the bread and then pause in that moment and then I'm going to pray and we're going to hand out the cup and you can take the cup and you can drink the juice and ponder on the great gift of Jesus' death for us. So let's pray now together. Lord, we thank you for dying on the cross. Lord, thank you for 
taking our sins and bearing them on your shoulders, Lord. And we thank you that we can eat this bread and be reminded of what you've done for us and we can take this juice as well. So Lord, would you make it afresh in our minds today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.